You're listening to the Companion Gun Dog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer, and with me, as always, is Emily Shirey. How you doing, Emily? I'm good as always, Grayson. How are you doing? So we're going to change the intro next time. It's, uh, I'm going to put some real thought into it. We're going to you know, jazz it up, make it <laughs> kind of funny, make it one of those podcasts that we said we would never make it. Yes. So. Let's do it. All right. So today... We are continuing our series on, I guess, puppy development, young dog, gun dog development. Uh, it's kind of evolved as we've moved forward with it. Um, it we we kind you know I I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do other than puppy development in our first one, and we really just spoke a lot about selecting a breeder, selecting individual dogs, specific characteristics we want to see in our dogs. Talked about. Um, Oh, what else did we discuss? We covered a little Some bit. Basics yeah. on yeah, crate like, training and socialization and stuff. Yep. So like, you know, basic puppy stuff we got covered. Uh, we alluded to the fact that we were going to get into the first year field. And in between that and this, we did one on the crate. Just because the more we thought about it, the more important we realized that topic was and how it needed to be covered. So I think we've done a pretty good job to this point of talking about, hey, you know, what criteria do you need to meet by picking your puppy? What do you want out of this experience? Um, once you get your puppy, how do you set yourself up for success? And then, of course, we went really, really deep on the crate, which is extremely important. And uh, and I think now we're ready to begin to think about tackling the first year of field. Um, I do, I went back and listened to the f- podcast before last and just listen to the uh, kind of the closing of that. And uh, and I'm glad I did because we did allude to some points where we we're going to cover before we really jumped into the first year of field. And most of that was kind of carrying on with power of ritual, which we discussed about the crate. Uh, I think we've, we've nailed that pretty hard. But we did mention that we would cover some reward-based training. And I've, I've, geared this episode specifically towards pointing dogs, but I will say that if we're talking about reward, reward based training with our puppies, um, that's going to kind of cross over. So there's not really going to be too much difference in the way I deal with a pointer puppy versus a retrieve retriever puppy, uh, in regards to reward based training systems. And we also have a whole entire podcast on reward-based training systems. Of course. So you can always go back and listen to that. So this won't be teaching you how to use reward-based training systems, but I do think it would be neat to cover just puppy basics. What would be important for you and with your eight-week-old puppy if you wanted to train with food? Um, what could you accomplish with food, say, between eight weeks and 16 weeks? Uh, or eight weeks and even six months of age, and what would be important about the power of ritual, structuring the lifestyle, and uh, you know, in it, to make it advantageous to get there. Um, and I'm pointing these at you specifically yeah. because you do this. Yeah, I do very little. So I have to preface this by saying I have two puppies right now and I'm showing everything I do with both of them on my Patreon. So if this is like something someone is super interested in, I have a bunch of videos if you're a visual learner. What I do with all my puppies is super um, in-depth reward-based training, especially in that that 12 to like 16 weeks age is my favorite puppy time. I feel like that's when they're really grasping concepts and you can get a lot done. Um, things that I do are of course, charge the mark. You've got to have some kind of marker system with puppies. We talk about that extensively. I'm not going to go into detail, um, in the reward based podcast, but you've got to have some sort of marker system in my opinion to use food efficiently. Um, recall number one thing you should be teaching with food for me. I do not recall my puppies, meaning I do not say hear or come or expect an absolute recall if I do not have a long line on them and if I do not have food. So that's a a very um, strict thing I follow is that if I cannot reinforce getting you to me and if I don't have a way of rewarding you once you come back to me, I don't use your, your recall word. So like I might go toasty. 
come on, girl. But if I have a line on her and I have food toast here, and that is how I'm establishing. When I say here, 100% of the time, you have to come back to me. That's non-negotiable. You can't learn that that word is something you ignore in the environment. Okay, let me, let me I'm going to pause it just for a second because we advanced really far. Um, that I guess, so one thing that comes to mind for me when I think of wanting to train with food is uh, making the decision to kind of keep your dog in food drive. Mm. So some dogs may not, right? Especially if we're like free feeding, right? So this is something I see a lot of. Uh, I get a ton of older dogs that come to me. When I say older dogs, maybe six months and up, that, uh, that when they get here have never been on like a feeding schedule. Yes, same. And so even for me, if I'm not using like reward-based food, but they're, they're existential food, they don't see as something as important. And it takes a few days for them to say, I need to eat all my food at feeding time. Yes. Um, so for me personally, I may not, if I was training a puppy from start, Mm -hmm. I may not always feed all of the existential food and training, Mm -hmm. but that's, that's going to be a part of their feeding for the day. And I know we did cover that. Yes, time, yes. So. That I work all my puppies for their food. And if I have any extra, I usually do something like scatter it on place. Um, unless I'm traveling, my puppies really don't ever eat out of a bowl. Gotcha, gotcha. So, But I do agree with you. I think, you know, obviously if you're going to, working in marker systems, they're really important. And I think yes. if all you ever did Is teach was, recall. was teach recall, or at least even yep. like treat dogs when yeah. they come to you. Like, yes, 100%. You take this thing down to its most simple level, throw yeah. the marker system out the window. Uh-huh. And if you ever notice your dog is out and uh, it just happens to come to you, slip it a treat. That's <laughs> yes. great. And your dog will want That's to come back. That's always fair. Um, but also, you know, if you're not using a feeding system and you are feeding your puppy out of a bowl, if you're giving them a lot of treats and a lot of wet food and a lot of snacks and things, which I do for my adult dogs that already have food drive, but if you're doing that for a puppy and then you get their kibble out and they're like, you know, overly interested in the environment and less interested in you, you've got to change your food routine. You can not take a low to moderate food drive dog and have a whole lot of success using food with them if they're not interested in your food. Yeah, I, I concur. And, and and so for me personally, even with my puppies, I want to feed them multiple times a day. I think it's really important, important that they always have caloric access um, as they're growing. And so usually for me, that's a three-time-a-day feeding schedule. Um, it's it, And if I'm choosing to train a puppy, and every once in a while I'll take a like a project on to train my puppy with food, then much of that food is going to come from hand. Yes. So that's you, they get it. That's again, ritual. It's ritual. Exactly. And so at feeding time, and then if I'm busy and I don't feel like it, I throw it in a bowl and throw it down. Still, even as puppies, they get access to their food for a limited amount of time. If they don't finish it, it comes up and it goes away. And as far as value is concerned, like I don't play value games with food at all. Like for me, I'm always at the lowest value food I can can work with. And if you don't want to work with it, that's not an issue of, for me, the value of the food. It's an issue of your level of food drive is not high enough. And so I will adjust that accordingly by um, changing your feeding schedule routine. And this also applies to adult dogs. Grace and I both have a client that um, recently switched, wanted to do a reward-based retrieve and switched to a feeding schedule and had a lot of success changing her adult dog's food drive. Cool. Um, wow. so it, this doesn't just apply to puppies. I, I didn't even know that was going on. Oh. So that's really cool. Yeah. And so speaking of that, so you did, we talked about recall. I don't, again, we've got an entire episode on this thing. Let's not break mm-hmm. it all down and explain how we do it, mm-hmm. but uh, things that I like and I do see. So I follow, you know, I, I follow you on Patreon. I rarely have time to actually sit down and watch videos. Um, so I tend to just pipe things into my ear all day long. Um, but I did see you working with toast and I could have sworn I saw you working on hold. Yes. So So. that is something I introduced to all my puppies as early as I can when I think they're ready. Um, I love to do reward based retrieves in the beginning and I will always overlay pressure. I am not, (laughs) I am not a purely positive trainer. I will always overlay pressure, but I like to, by the time my puppies, you know, six months old and being e-collar conditioned, I like to be in a place with my retrieve where I'm feeling close to being ready to add in pressure. So I always start with hold as early as they can, which might be 
11, 12 weeks. Toast is four months old and is now grabbing and holding objects without my hands. Sure. Yeah, I mean, so so there's tons, again, you know, and I've said this over and over and over again, and I think uh, I can never reiterate this enough. Um, there is tons of power in reward-based training systems. You know, wh- whether you see me uh, in my either online content or you come and train with me, you're not going to see me employing them very much. It's just, it's not something I choose to do. I do recognize the value. And in certain cases, I, I find them very ad- advantageous to, to employ, uh, you know, as opposed to more compulsive systems of training, which I tend to exist in more, more often. Um, when, you know, so go to Emily's Patreon. I, I highly, I mean, it's cheap. It's worth it. If you, if you've got an interest in this, um, you know, don't tell her I told you this, but you can like just get it for a few months and scrap it when you don't feel like doing it anymore. <laughs> you can definitely do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, so, so it's, but it's worth being exposed to what's going on. And so we got a recall. I see your, I see all your puppies doing a climb type of deal or getting onto a place board yep. or some sort of platform in a workstation. Um, there's tons of value in that later down the road. And then of course, all our retrieve work, there's, the all of these things, everything we do, some component of it can be worked on in a reward based system. It may not have a direct correlation to something we'll do compulsively later, but it will have some sort of indirect correlation, I'm sure. Uh, whether it just be teaching something as simple as duration and patience and things of that nature, which will in turn um, lend themselves to steadiness and things like that down yep. the road. So we're going to get off that subject. I did want to touch on it. I want you guys to know how important I believe it is. And so if you're into this, and especially if you're like that, you know, maybe if you've had a couple of bird dogs along the line, but you're getting your new puppy, you consider yourself a novice to some degree, um, learn reward-based training systems, learn marker systems. It will make you a better overall trainer, get proficient, get good. You're going to be better down. You'll, you'll, it will, you will reap the rewards of that down the line for yourself and for your Mm -hmm. dog. So I highly suggest it. Yes. If I have one recommendation for anyone who wants to be a good trainer, learn how to shape a behavior, especially if you can do it without luring. If you can shape a behavior by capturing little segments that you know, turn into something bigger, you will understand all of dog training. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> you will learn how to teach your dog anything. If you can learn how to shape a behavior. Yeah. She's got a point. And it's, it's, uh, I mean, yeah, sh- shaping, calling it free shaping is, is going a little overboard, but if you go back in some of our previous podcast episodes, you'll Cheater hear that explained. Cheater shaping. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so somewhere between complete luring and free shaping yep. is this world of the, it just, extreme thought from your dog and hard work from you. And you're going to learn patience. You're going to learn. Yeah. I mean, you're going to learn how to really observe your dog. Yeah. And your dog's going to become a thinker. Your dog's Mm going to really, really become an animal that, that begins to understand how to be thoughtful and work hard and develop a work ethic. And I think you will, you know, you're, and there's no doubt in my mind when we talk about stress and this is something, and I mean, I don't want to get into this junk, but like, you know, the reward based or the force free community out there talk so much about how high stress training and how we try to avoid stress. Nothing is more stressful than shaping. Than shaping. <laughs> it's like for the dog and for the trainer. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and so, um, kind of, it, kind of, you know, pushing your tolerance threshold up for, for training later down the road when you get into compulsion. I think that has a a lot of value in that regard. So definitely. So get into that, enjoy it. And, um, and I think we'll move into the field. I broke this down, uh, in my notes that I'll make public, uh, later into the first six months and the second six months. But as always, those, those numbers are arbitrary. This is always about milestones for me and never about time. So if you get through your dog six months of age and you haven't done any of this, it doesn't matter. That's like, it doesn't matter at all. Um, it's a matter of, Hey, and this is, this is as good as you're ever going to get from me in regards to like, what's a step-by-step process to train. Then this is not really even a step-by-step process to train. I'll do what's convenient for me in the moment on this list, (laughs) depending on what I got going on that day and what the weather looks like and you know, what kind of drive my dog looks like they're in or whatever. I mean, I don't need to 
to, to kind of pigeonhole myself into uh, following some sort of step-by-step system uh, religiously. Now, that being said, I get that it helps other people, that they want to see that, that they feel um, like more structure is is going to allow them to to progress in a, in a better fashion, and that's cool. Um, it's just not the way, way I work, and I, I don't want you to feel as if for some reason you're not, you know, accomplishing your objectives because you're not hitting, uh, milestones at a certain time. So just, just keep that in mind. Um, so this is it. I got my new puppy. We've crate trained this thing. We've carried him around. We've done some reward based training. I've got the super social, confident, well-adjusted puppy. Uh, let's call him 10, 12 weeks of age. Her, uh, we're, we're doing very well. We're sleeping through the night in the crate now, um, maybe at 16 weeks of age. And I now have access to birds. So the very first thing that I want to do when I have a bird dog puppy, and remember this one's going to be pointer specific. Uh, we may reach out and do a uh, retriever specific one later. There will be some crossover. But for me, with bird dog puppies, I want to see them become a predator. So you, you've heard me say it before, make a monster. And that's my objective. Not every other trainer feels the same way I do, but that's how I feel about it. I want a bird hating little cuss running around the woods, setting everything on fire, trying to catch birds, playing keep away from me. <laughs> um, you know, and, and now again, you may not want that. And if you don't want the keep away part, then you need to control the environment. Um, what that may mean is, uh, the puppy could be dragging a check cord, uh, which will at least help you get a handle on it. It may not be perfect, or you can be in a fenced area, you know? And so if you need to be in a big fenced area to do your bird intro work, just so you don't lose your puppy, then, um, then that's what you need. But what I don't suggest is that when your little baby puppy has that bird in their mouth and they're keep playing keep away from you is that you chase it down and, and whip its butt for not coming back to you and for, you know, chomping on the bird or doing whatever. Um, don't worry about promoting this. You know, I don't suggest that you go out there and play tug of war with your bird, bird and your puppy. But if the puppy doesn't care enough to want it and to want to keep it away from you and to want to possess it, then there should, there's something wrong with that puppy. Like they should want that to some degree. Now, okay, there's not something wrong with that puppy. I just got to look because yes. yes, some of my puppies That's go. That's very normal, <laughs> but that does mean we need to handle the situation differently. 100%. Okay, I misspoke. <laughs> Every once in a while, a puppy runs out, puts a bird in his mouth just as gently as they possibly can, saunters over to me, tucks its head into my lap and just love me. And that's cool too. Like that's a lot of fun. Some puppies are going to go out there the first, especially on their first bird exposure and they're going to be scared to death. Yep. Like, you know, and, and that's and, totally fine. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, we, some of this is congenital, maybe genetic. Um, some of this, maybe we didn't get all the environmental desensitization we wanted to earlier, you know, along the way. If, if you don't have a bold puppy that's happy being outside and in grass and jumping over logs and running across little rocks and creeks and, and stuff. Dragging the tra- check cord. Dragging that check cord and feeling good about themselves and feeling like a, a tough little confident puppy, then you don't really, you're not there yet. You don't need to worry about bird intro. So, um, and this I see all the time. People come to visit me and it's like, you know, they want to see bird intro and we give it a shot. I'll, I, you know, I know somebody's paying me money. They drove two hours to see me. And they can't get their dog out of their crate when they get here. And the dog's on its belly the whole time, you know, and it's scared to death of a new environment. It's a tough place to start from. And it's really hard to get a dog that's in that parasympathetic state, that scared to death flight type reaction to care about being in prey drive, to, to mm-hmm. reflexively tr- come into prey drive. So, so that's super important, guys. Have, you know... Do the best you can. And and sometimes it's sometimes it's not nurture at all. Sometimes you just get a really, really spooky puppy that's gonna need like a either a long term kind of loving rehab. Sometimes they're just not gonna make a bird dog. Sometimes they're not gonna make a pet. You know, it's you just do the best you can with what you got. It's, and and you know, your situation is, is that's up to you whether or not that puppy stays with you for the long haul. And if you choose it, you know, and what I also want to say is like, if you choose to stick with that puppy for, for the long haul and it's a, 
basket case and you give it your best effort, you should be applauded for giving it your best effort. And if you want to work with me, I'll work with you till the till for 15 years until that <laughs> dog dies if we never get it to pick up a, pu- a bird. I'm never going to tell you to quit on your dog if you don't want to. You know, there's times where, yeah, you're going to run into a the the ROI is just not there sometimes. And if you decide to move on, that that's a, a, there's nothing wrong with that either. So it's just you shouldn't be stigmatized for feeling one way or the other. If you want to wash it out, you don't like it, move it down the line. If you yep. if you like it and you love it and it's not never going to make a bird dog, but you're never going to give up, then good on you too. I just want to make a note here that um, Grayson and I are not big on you have to introduce your puppy to birds by a specific age. Yeah. I know you might find that um, somewhere on the internet or some trainer might tell you they need to be introduced by six months old in order to make a bird dog. That is not something we buy into. So if you need to take six months to build your puppy's confidence to come out here and have it be bold enough to want to be introduced to birds, that is 100% fine. If you bring your two-year-old dog out here, that is 100% fine. Yeah. So often people show up and, um, you know, and the first thing I do and I'll look at the dog and I'll get an idea. Okay. This dog's confident. This dog's a little unconfident. Um, you know, it's a basket case, it's a monster, it's whatever it is. Most oftentimes the best course of action. And this is why I do free consults. And I know here I'll, I'll kind of, I want to get a little more deep on why I do free consults. I want to do free consults so I can vet you, <laughs> right? I'm going to tell you if I don't think that this is, you know, the best option for you. And I want you to vet me. I want us to leave having shaken hands. And it may may not be the best feeling in the world on either end, but we're willing to give it a shot. Um, but I also want you to show up here. And if you don't like whatever vibe you're getting, you don't don't feel like you got to give me money. You know, I want you to see the value in, in me before we start to do business with one another. Um, and, and, and so that goes along with this. If you come out here and your dog is a basket case, the very first time it's here, sometimes the best thing to do is just let's go for a walk around the farm. Mm -hmm. Let's relax. Let's get Althea out and Mm -hmm. introduce that dog to another, another dog. And, and, um, and have it be a social and fun environment. And oftentimes my first three to five lessons with a client may just be, let's, the moment I want, what I want to see is you pull into this driveway and your dog gets excited to be here. So whether that means birds are in play or whether it just means we're having playtime every time, um, that's important to get to. Now, the second time you come, even if we're just doing playtime, you got to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, you know, that's, but most times we're, we're moving into birds, but just understand that when we talk about not putting arbitrary timelines on things, milestones are what's important. And the very first milestone you must meet before we go looking for birds and beating up on birds and having all the bird fun we can is you need that social confident dog that's happy to be in the environment and ready to, to be exposed to more. Um, so we've talked about just getting started making a predator. I guess now it's time to actually talk about what it means to make a predator. So it's bird intro. Most oftentimes, and I've this, you've heard this before on the podcast, but most oftentimes when I do an initial bird intro, I've got my happy dog bouncing around the field. I stand out there in the middle. I will break a, what what would be akin to the humorous bone on both wings of the quail. And I will keep that bird in my hands until the puppy approaches me and I'll set that bird down and it'll begin to kind of usually just run away. They can't flog now. And so this puppy's not going to be flogged. And what we hope to see is it triggered that just the running away, the action of the bird triggers prey drive in the puppy and that the puppy gives hard chase. Um, and it, it, the puppy may grab the bird and begin squishing it and chewing on it and pulling its head off or doing whatever, or it may run over there and be afraid of it. Either way, the next session is going to look pretty similar to the first. And the puppy will tell me when it's ready to progress. So we go from that first bird to maybe the second being from hand, but not having broken wings, but maybe pulled flight feathers or one broken wing, depending on the puppy. So if the puppy's moving slow, we progress more slowly. If the puppy's a hammer, we go out there and we progress more quickly Based on intuition, for you, it would never hurt to just go as slow as you want. You, your puppy cannot be 
too much of a monster, in my <laughs> opinion. And this is where, like I said, where you're going to hear other people contradict that at some time, uh, at some point in time. Um, for me, and, and this can go forever too. There's no timeline. I don't care if you bring me a three-year-old that acts like this. Blitz. I got something to work with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very similar to, yeah, to what, what Blitz was coming in. The key is, is to get from that place to our finished bird dog in a clear and concise way communicating what we expect from the dog. And so I don't care how crazy, how bold, how prey driven, how hard, how tough on birds this dog is. It's my job to now move the ball down the field as we, as we progress. So, um, let them chase. I want them dragging that check cord. I want them getting tangled up with that check cord and doing backflips while they're hung on the briar patch until we can cut it loose and they go run away you know, and, and usually with puppies, we don't need to worry about tracking collars and stuff. I mean, it's really, really rare, um, that somebody bring me, you know, a puppy, especially if they've had the opportunity when we've spoken about this to be off lead and move around with you in the field They're They don't want to be out of contact with you. So they may go hard, hard, hard on the bird, um, odds are you're not losing that puppy. So dragging the check cord is usually enough, but if you're uncomfortable with it, keep it in a controlled environment. Let them chase in a fenced area. No big deal. Um, once we've got our monster, once I've got this puppy and it will hammer all the birds on the ground, it will chase until it's heart's content. I've usually decided I have a monster when I've pulled just enough flight feathers that this bird can, can flush and fly, and if you do it just right, I like to pull a couple of the outside flight feathers, maybe three or four, and then the inside, I call them loft feathers, and that's my like su- completely pseudoscientific definition. <laughs> I have no idea what you would call them. It doesn't make me the best uplander in the world, but um, but maybe the left wing is going to have the inside feathers pulled, the outside feather, or the right feather is going to have the outside feathers pulled, and usually you'll get this effect of that bird can get like four to five feet off the ground but just can't get enough loft under it, but can move horizontally at a pretty good clip. And it's like this perfect chase for the puppy. Once I see that puppy really bearing down on that chase, getting to the end of it, catching that bird, putting it in their mouth, either strutting around, bringing it to me, running away from me, doesn't matter at that point what they're doing once the bird's in their mouth. Um, then I want to see the step to the next milestone. So that's that's number one. Now I want to see them become a hunter. I want to see them begin to look for birds. And in the notes, I have the importance of incidental contact. And this is where that becomes very important to me. So now you've you've already seen birds that were not in my hand. I've taken you into a field. I've kind of exposed you to birds on the ground. You flush them, but you haven't really had to go look for them. For the most part, puppies that have done this, they're going to come out the gate banging around the field looking. Um, But at this point, now we're going to move on. And I'm not going to, I want to be very careful about drawing an association between what I'm doing, where I am on the field, and where that bird happens to be. So there are going to be times, so I don't want to act like I never do this. There are going to be times where I'm going to do my best to manipulate the puppy's uh, ground application in such a way that they come across scent cone. But that's what I'm always aiming to do. I never want to take the dog to the bird. I want to somehow induce the dog into moving across the scent cone. And the, the more subtle I can be about how I influence that dog to do that, the better off I am. And the less reliant that dog becomes on me to go find the bird for them. So that's not what I want. So now I'm taking my puppies after their little monsters on these walks and occasionally there's not going to be a bird out there. And that's really important. Sometimes you just go have fun and you go, look, every once in a while, we're going to like, hopefully the course is going to work in such a way. And the wind is going to work in such a way that as I walk you forward, you're going to bang, hit a scent cone, go in there, find a bird. It may be compromised still, depending on your drive state. This is where the birds become more elusive. Um, and so that may go on forever. I don't know. But what I do want to see before I worry at all about your pointing, I want to see you looking and I want to see you searching independently. I want to see you 
hopefully staying in contact with me. Now, if at this point you're getting big and rangy, and sometimes this will happen with four or five, six month old puppies, then okay, it's time to take a break. You're not going to lose your desire for birds, but let's develop a handle. Um, so we haven't talked about collar conditioning at this point and we won't just yet. It comes a little later in the, in the podcast, but this is a stage where if I recognize not only, I don't particularly care that you handle for me here and that you respond to my cues. I still want you to not want, not lose complete, you know, caring of where I am in time and space. I want you to want to be with me in some regard. So if you get to chasing birds and you get to hunting birds and you're going big and you've quit looking over your shoulder and you're going over the hill, you know, let's just hit pause. Let's take it to the yard for a few weeks and let's get it. You know, if, if, if you're still too small and young to collar condition, which is completely subjective, but you know, usually if you're hard enough to not care about where I am and you're running over the hill, you're hard <laughs> enough to be collar conditioned yes. at this point. I, what I don't want to do, guys, is like turn your entire world into the check cord at this point in time. I still want you exploring the ground you're on. Um, so, so that being said, blank walks every once in a while. And I'm going to stretch these things out. So now you're hunting. You're doing well. We're going from, hey, we're going to go a couple of hundred yards away from the house or the kennel or wherever we're starting our walk to 500 yards to a half mile to a mile long walk in the morning sometimes, you know, and sometimes you're going to, there's going to be a bird just in the right spot. Like, and usually I like to use these little pinch points or keyholes on the course where, Hey, you know, I've had a big field and now the field kind of funnels you into a certain place. I know my wind is blowing right to left. I know the funnel is taking you cross that scent cone and I want you to be out front and tag it there. Get your bird, chase your bird till your heart's content. The birds are becoming more elusive and more elusive to the point where I'm no longer compromising them. Once that happens, if I have a really tough little bird dog that's fast and develops a sense of timing and tries to learn how to catch birds on the ground, that could happen if I have bad cover and bad birds, right? So this is where we're moving into kind of that, that next phase, which is make a pointing dog before we get to that. We need to talk about gunfire exposure. So now I got this super hard little dog. So this is, you know, milestone number two, make my hunter. My next milestone would be to make my bird dog or my pointing dog in there somewhere, we have to have a good gunfire exposure. And I would say this is really a, probably the place where we need, where it would make sense to have collar conditioning and gunfire exposure. So if you're coming into my program with a relatively young dog, say under a year of age, they've never been exposed to birds, they've never been exposed to gunfire, these are my number one priorities so that I can do bird work with you. If I've got a puppy or you have a puppy, then I'm less concerned with how well you handle and if you're immediately desensitized to gunfire because I have control over the environment. I, one thing I do know is that when I finish a dog in my program, they got to be, they got to have a handle on them and they can't be gun shy. So doesn't matter if I've got the best pointing dog on the planet, if either two, two of those things aren't in place. And so you, you know, I may put things a little bit out of order in regards to my program for that reason, but I need to know that I can move forward if that makes sense. So we got our hard hunting little bird hating monster. And all I put in here was start conservatively and uh, rehab the gun shy before it begins. I've covered this, I think probably in our, one of our overview deals, but I, I, I would suggest if you if you've never introduced your dog to gunfire, if you've never been around bird dogs and you're doing this for the first time, go buy John Hans, uh, the Gun Shy Fix. Right, he's the guy that or perfect Gun Shy Fix. He's the guy that did the perfect start, perfect finish series. He's uh, he runs Perfection Kennels in Kansas City, and I don't do many many things the way John does, but one thing I like is that DVD. And I think if you would just treat your bird intro the same way he treats his gun shy rehab, then you're very, 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 very unlikely to gun shy your dog. So that's kind of 
the way we do things here. I, and sometimes I'll say I'll do a retriever style gun intro. Something that's really important to me is I want the dog to know what's coming. I want to have, I want them to have a visual picture of everything that's going on in front of them so that there's no surprises. So most of my bird intro is going to come from the front. The dog's going to be restrained by a handler on leash. I'm going to go to the front. We already know that puppy wants to go put the bird in its mouth. We know they're bird crazy. That's the most important thing. We never introduce a gunfire to a pointing dog puppy that isn't bird crazy ever uh, ever you know so if they don't care about birds we don't care about gunfire yet you know and, and until they're cra- bird crazy we don't we don't care at all um so once we got that bird crazy puppy i go out front with a compromised bird i'm gonna f- f- let it flutter around in front of them a little bit from my hand and they're gonna go wild and be screeching at the end of the leash the handler is gonna come down towards the pup on the end of the leash to the point where they can control them so they're just not spinning so that they can focus on me. Once that puppy locks in and I know they're focused on me, I just go, hey, 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 and I throw that bird. The very first time they ever see the bird from the front, that's how it's going to go. I want to establish that I'm out front, and when you hear hey, 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 you can expect to see a bird fly. So I've that already exists. So the picture, it's not the first time they're going to hear the gunfire. The next time, we may do that again. It just depends on how focused the dog is, how driven the dog is, how how much of that picture I think they've absorbed to that point. Once they get on lead, they see me go out front and they're automatically locked in and they know what's going on. And it's also important to note, hey, I always tell the handler, the moment the bird hits the ground, I want you to release the dog. This is not about steadiness. This is that that's going to give them the best opportunity to get their mouth on that dog. They're going to see the mark hit the ground and they're going to run straight to it. Hopefully if you let them go at that moment. For me, my progression is the Schlager stick whip, crack the whip first. So it'll be, Hey, Hey, Hey. After I know the picture's solid, I crack my little Schlager stick whip to, to just kind of, um, approximate the sound of gunfire at a very low level. And I throw the bird and we'll do that a few times. If I see at any point, I see the slightest bit of hesitation or some sort of sensitive reaction to anything that's going on. We back up or we stay put and we just kind of work until we're confident that the dog's full of piss and vinegar and ready to go. That may mean you go away and we come back and we do this thing over and over and over again until the dog likes the picture and goes hard. Um, Once, I'm happy with the way they're handling for the whip. I will often, usually at this point, you'll hear people talk about go from low pressure 22 up to a primer, up to a 410, up to a 20 gauge, up to a 12 gauge. That's fine. For me personally, I just deal with a primer gun and deal with distance first. And the primer gun is what they're going to hear the great majority of the time until I'm ready to shoot a bird over them. And then we'll come back and reintroduce the shotgun in the same fashion I reintroduced or I introduced the primer. So normally once I'm confident that the dog is neutral to the primer gun, then I'm ready to take that dog afield and let them start bumping birds. And while they're in chase and I know they've got a visual contact with that bird, I'll begin to blank gun blank rounds off behind them. Once I'm happy with that, then we'll go, reintroduce a shotgun in the same fashion and we'll do the same thing. We're not shooting the bird directly over the dog. One step that I didn't cover in there and that's important and that I like depending on the dog in particular is I will sometimes employ a third helper. So there's me, one helper and a third person and have them go behind me, say 40, 50 yards with the blank gun. So they're still in front of the dog. The picture is still the same And then I'll, hey, 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 raise my hand. That person shoots. When they do, I throw the bird. Bird hits the ground. Handler releases. Dog goes, either mauls the bird, takes it back to the handler, whatever. The shot now predicts the the mark. So the shot predicting the mark is really important because it now becomes a classically conditioned stimulus that predicts something awesome. And it's gonna, it's going to now produce its own dopaminergic effect in the dog. Um, at some point, we want to neutralize that, but for now, I want the shot to be oh, burr, 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 burr. so, so that way, if that's the case, much less likely to become sensitive to it. I don't. It starts hopefully as a neutral stimulus, um, 
when paired with an unconditioned stimulus, like the bird, it becomes a conditioned stimulus. That's pure classical conditioning. And that's what we're doing with our gunfire. Again, we go back to something much more intense, like a shotgun, introduce it the same way. Then we get the dog in chase. We put, point the muzzle in the opposite direction of the puppy chasing the bird or the dog chasing the bird. We fire the gun that way at first, and we slowly bring that muzzle uh, around closer to the dog, always looking while they're in chase to the point that we now feel comfortable shooting a bird for the dog. First time I shoot a bird for the dog, most likely I'm going to go do the, do it all out in front of the dog. So I walk out there, I throw a live flyer, and I shoot it from hand while somebody else stands off in the distance and lets their dog watch me do that, and then they get to go chase it down. You do this, guys, it's a lot. It is a lot. If you do it, you will not gun-shy your dog. If you gun-shy your dog, you will regret it. It is a pain in the butt. And it can, it, many, many great, great, otherwise great bird dogs have been rendered useless in the field because of being, because they were made gun shy. So I can't emphasize enough. You can't go too slow with your gunfire intro. And if you're not confident in what you're looking at, take all the time in the world or reach out for help or yeah, especially reach out for help. And if you don't have help close and you don't want to send your dog away or you can't afford to send your dog away, then it's worth investing in John Hans DVD. If you can't make that investment, you shouldn't even, you know, shouldn't go there. So a couple of things I want to add just to emphasize that there's seriously nothing more important <laughs> than not gun shying your dog. Never ever just fire a gun to see if your dog is gun shy or not happens all the time happens all the time i took my dog to the clay's range yes don't do that don't do that if you do not have birds do not do any gunfire around your dog period that is a hard and fast rule and grace and i have none of those but that is going to be the one we have (laughs) if you don't have birds don't fire guns around your dog you're just taking it you're taking a really silly risk like when it comes to risk this is something, I guess this is where, to me, if it's making your dog more powerful, there's no hard and fast rules. If you risk damaging your dog's drive, if you risk damaging your relationship with your dog, if you risk physical injury or death to your dog, those are where you need to mitigate risk, right? If it means your dog's going to catch a bird on the ground, let it happen. That's a risk you can take. That's a risk you can take. The risk you run by freaking out and jamming your dog up when it goes to catch that bird on the ground is much greater than the risk of allowing the dog to catch the bird on the ground. I'm going to say that again. I need to. So for those of you out there that are struggling with a dog that's too aggressive on their birds, there is a better way than woe breaking that dog in the presence of the bird this is the hell grace and will die on (laughs) this is it this is and so if you if that's happening you need better birds and you need better cover that a a good bird in good cover an appropriate cover will not be caught on the ground so it don't you don't get upset with your dog if that's happening There are times where it is appropriate after you have exhausted great birds, great cover, all your launcher work, coming back through it, managing your chase, and you still got a dog digging a bird out of cover and giving it a hard chase. That's when you can start thinking, in my opinion, how can I conservatively begin to um, intervene here? pre-flush. So I kind of got ahead of myself, but that's what I want you to know. That's my philosophy of bird dog training is what can I do to facilitate? What can I do through management of the environment to allow this dog to progress at the rate I would like to see it progress at or to just progress at all? Because whatever rate you decide you want it to progress at doesn't really matter all that much, to be honest with you. So um, it's it, the dog's going to do what it's going to do. Some dogs are pushy. Very few 
are that pushy that if you make things understandable, if you if you make if you manage the environment in such a way that they don't have free access to bad birds and bad cover on the ground, very few of them are just going to run in there and pick it up. And if they do, they're they're a good flushing dog, and that's what they should be utilized as, <laughs> right? In my opinion, if I got to go teach a dog to point, if you know, and and it's been given all the opportunities to to become a good pointer naturally then that's a flushing dog. It's as simple as that. Um, and that's, and that's okay. Like, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's better to just enjoy your dog, take it hunting, keep it in shotgun range, you know? Um, so, you know, again, I got way off track. It's the, the end of gunfire exposure is kind of at the end of where I put the first six months, but that's a milestone. So the first step was to make a monster and and i that's synonymous with make a predator all i want is to for it to understand that it's a predator and that it wants to chase capture kill eat whatever birds doesn't matter then i want to make a hunter now i've given my gunfight making the hunter is i want that dog to go out there and independently but as a team go out there and work and try to find birds and have fun um Next, we make sure we have gunfire exposure. After that, I would say collar conditioning before I move into the next phase of making a really making a bird dog. Um, it's time. If you've got, I'm sure there are some people out there that are into bird dogs that are anti collar, maybe force free for whatever reason. And that if you are that way, good on you. What I will tell you is. In this day and age, if you're not using it, I think you're doing your dog a disservice. And and I, when I say using it, I mean employing it appropriately and effectively and ethically and humanely. I mean, allowing your dog to develop a relationship with this piece of gear, for you to develop a deep understanding of this piece of gear, and to not try to go out there and put it to work before it's understood by either one of you. That's, that's super duper important. It's the most important thing. So yes, you should use it. You should, yes, you should put a lot of effort, a lot of time and a lot of effort into understanding it. Same. So we've talked about, you know, ROI on great gunfire introduction the same goes for a, a real collar conditioning program a real like under like go to a professional i don't yes. i don't really know of a dvd do you have anything on collar conditioning i do on patreon go to emily's page this is if if anything is worth collar it conditioning do you patreon. really okay so we need to link to that i need to show so that's it guys like nothing until you've if you're going to employ the collar stop where you're at we got our gunfire now we need a handle. And how I know I'm going to have a handle is when I can go in the field and I can recall my dog and without a fight, without, and, and what I would say, and this is subjective, without, um, uh, without having a, a, I hate the word negative in this regard, but I can't think of another one, a negative impact on your dog's uh, emotional state. I want to see a happy dog. I want to recall it. I want to be able to negatively reinforce that with the e-collar. And I want my dog to still come back to mm -hmm. me happy as heck and ready to go again. And I can release it and it bolts straight back out to the field. And we go for a little more walk and I stop and I recall it and it comes all the way back and yep. it waits to be released again. If I'm not at that place, I'm not ready to really dig into my next phase of bird work for me. So I want to see a super duper strong recall and I want to see... That dog come all the way home to me, and I want it to understand that when it's there, duration is implied. You must stay with me until I release you again. Yep. And and so until I've got that, I'm not going anywhere else. And, and so go ahead. The importance of the being released and feeling liberated again. Sure. Yeah, and that's that's a good point. So we've talked about pre Mac in the past. This is where I'm developing that. So it's I want I want you to not self release at this point. I want the power. The reason I want you to stay 
have implied duration and you wait until released again is not just because I want to lord over you and manage you in that way. <laughs> it's because there's so much power in that release. And there's I'm I'm I can use that as a reinforcer down the road. And this is this gets really to the heart of my approach to training is I want I'm building so much of what I do around chase as as I view it as a reinforcer and, um, and you know, I, I think there's room to talk about that a lot more. We're already at the 50 minute mark. And so maybe this is a good place to chat about it more, but you know, it's, it, until you are, managing your own impulse to chase a bird, but you still want to chase a bird. I'm not taking your chase away when I break a bird dog out. And this is getting into making a bird dog. So I'm just, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to just dig a little deeper into to my beliefs on breaking out bird dogs without going through the step-by-step process. And then I'm going to come back and do another podcast on finishing out a bird dog. And really this is, I think if you're at this place in your first year of field, before you really even start into staunchness or whatever, you're in a good spot because you can go wild bird hunting. You can, t- and you've got your, you've got a handle on your dog. We've talked about collar conditioning. You got collar conditioning, you got gunfire, we got bird exposure. If that's where you get by the time your dog's a year of age, you're in a pretty damn good spot. Um, And, and if you can, take all the money you would have put into finishing your bird dog in its first year of life or trying to teach it to be staunch in its first year of life, sock that away for a couple of tanks of gas to Kansas or, or, you know, the North woods somewhere and spend a week really letting your dog just chase wild birds around the countryside. Um, you're better off. And, and so what I'm going to do in order to, to teach a dog that it's not appropriate to put a bird in the air is to show them that it's not appropriate to chase it unless they've been allowed to. And so when I get to this next phase of training, that's, that's my guiding principle. That's my guiding light. I don't want to intervene as my dog is making the action to get this bird off the ground. If I've had good birds, if I've utilized good cover even Sands launcher to this point, um, my dog should want to point. And I'm not taking the chase away from him at this point because I want them to conceptualize what it means to be staunch. But th- that's the important part. So I did uh, recently a uh, a podcast episode with Nick Adair that hasn't aired yet. So he's doing this whole series on the word woe. And he actually reached out to me because he knows I'm not a fan of using that command. That doesn't mean I don't teach my dogs to stop and stand and wait. I do. And I do teach them to stop and stand and wait in the context of being a bird dog in the field. What I don't do is build my entire training system on jamming my bird dog up when they're excited about prey. What I want them to do is, hey, if I stay in this state of ex- excited, um, excited kind of potential animation, I can be released and all this kinetic energy and all this emotion and all of this uh, dopamine can kind of be released all at the same time. And that's what I want my dog to want. And that's what I'm aiming at for steadiness down the road. And so I can make cautious dogs by exposing them to the right kind of birds in the right kind of environment. And I guess what I will probably do is uh, between this episode and the next uh, phase of that next six months making a bird dog, I'm probably going to reach out to my friend, um, stump Kevin stump grant, 
out of Polly's Island, South Carolina. And he and I have hunted birds for a long time together. We're going on seven years, I think, of, of traveling and hunting together. And he pretty much leaves every year in September and stays gone through the hunting season till Woodcock opens at home and he comes home. And, um, and we've been toying with the idea for years of him taking a few of my client dogs out there just for the exposure. Um, and so I think I'm going to reach out to stump and we're going to try to formalize that. And I think it's really good fodder for a, the importance of wild birds podcast. And I think that would fit right into where we are now in this, uh, in this podcast. So you guys forgive me. I was a little more rambly today than normal. I I had trouble collecting my thoughts. I had my notes down, but you know, it's easy to allow, uh, my brain to just kind of go wherever it wants to wander. So, um, we'll look forward to talking to stump sometime in the next couple of weeks, hopefully, and talk a little bit about that. He's got a lot of other things coming up that I'd like to help him promote as well. Um, so hopefully I can get Emily to sit down at a specific time and do that with him. And we'll see, uh, Emily, what do you got going on? Uh, about to be hunt test season. Yeah. Yeah. About to Next go out weekend. There. Yep. She's going to put uh, HRCH on Althea this spring and she'll be at the fall <laughs> grand with her. Really looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, now I'm fired up. You've been doing spaniel hunt test with your labs. Next weekend. Have we talked about that on the podcast? No, we, oh, need, this, a, we this, need a flushing no, no. lab podcast. No, we're going into it right now. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Everyone buckle. No, buckle yeah. Up. So, okay. So we need a flushing lab podcast. Yes. Yeah, definitely a flushing dog podcast. But that is that that is really neat. Do you have Spaniel test coming up soon? Yeah, next weekend. Next, you said that already? Yeah. Okay. I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. I was, li- Hopefully I was thinking about all the words I wanted to say. While <laughs> we were talking. Um, so you got that. How about retriever hunt test? You got any of those coming up? Um. I, I'm doing just AKC because Ember got her season title in the fall. So I'm doing AKC senior. I think I've got two in April. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. For me, um, I got no no events from now till September. I don't think sink, I've talked about that. Sink a version if you want to talk about that. Oh, well, yeah, definitely want to hit that. But I got no like competitive dog events. Uh, September I did. I don't know if you guys remember when I said, I don't think I want to take Wayne to the invitational. <laughs> um, well I am crawfishing on that and I am going to take Wayne to the invitational and I'm super pumped about it to be honest with you. I don't know why I just had a change of heart when we qualified. <laughs> so like, it was like, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, I don't think I'm going to take him to the invitational and then you get your UT one and you're like, I want to take him to the invitational. <laughs> I'm so, excited for you guys. Yeah. So he's coming, he'll be here all summer. We're going to get him up here a couple of times prior, um, just to kind of, Keep keep the uh, the axles greased, if you will, and uh, and then we are going to go to Ohio in September, and hopefully uh, hopefully do well. We'll see. There's only one way to find out for that, and then we'll be gearing up. I need to start looking at fall dates for other things. I think st- so. My puppy Stevie, I'd like to try to maybe aim for an NA. So, That'd be fun. Yep, she swam for the first time yesterday. Aww. Yep. So just crossing a creek, she decided to take the plunge and she did that a few times. So right now she's at 18 weeks. How, how big you think she is? Five pounds. <laughs> oh, she's bigger than that. <laughs> she's tiny, man. She's so tiny. But she you know what? is a literal peanut. Yeah. She's, she's super small, but I'm kind of fired up and I'm hoping like if she makes 25 pounds, she could, she could make the team here. I don't care. I'm not one of those people that, uh, that it's too concerned with, with, the morphology. Um, so there's, so she's coming up. Who else? Pete is one wild braced win away from his grand champion of the field in UKC. So next year I may have to do a little traveling for that. Um, I just want, I want, that's, I think that's an important title. It's really hard to get down here in the Southeast. We've had a couple of wild trials, but even at the wild trials we have down here, like the, Bird numbers are so low. If you can get a contact on one, you're you're really, really lucky. And so far, we have not been. So I, I did send in an audit to UKC, and he should be have his champion of the field, and I'll have that sent in, and we'll go ahead and make that, um, make that a, a deal at this point. So proud of him. Crockett this season, 
this will be his last season on the guide string. He uh, he's just got that. He's got an old injury that's coming up. Yep, and he would started getting stove up. He's got about three hours on the ground, and he just like it it hurts him now. So. So we're going to retire him from guiding, but he still hunts good. And he still hunts fine for a couple hours down at a time. And he's still mobile. We'll get him to the vet. I'm going to swim him a lot. Try to, um, you know, just focus on his physical fitness in that regard. And, and I think we got a few more years of, of fun to have with him. Soybean is turning a corner. I haven't talked a lot about her. Um, I've been worried about her. But much less so in the last couple of weeks. She started really reaching out for her birds. She's hanging on to her points. This is I've never shown her a launcher. Nothing but bad birds and good cover, I'd say. <laughs> like we just haven't had great birds this spring for for that kind of getting really, really tight. Um but yesterday she we took a long walk around the farm in the afternoon and she uh she was really reaching out and and also staying in contact. So she's just in and sometimes that happens. You get a bird dog that just um they don't quite understand what's going on and they don't want to be away from you. And the hunt just quite hasn't kicked in yet, but I think it, it really is now. So I, I don't want to speak too soon and jinx it. Um, but I think she might be making the team and I'm really excited about that because she has a, she, like, she's not the best swimmer in the world, but she is not afraid of water at all. And she will give it everything she's got. And she like, she planed out a little bit yesterday too. So that's, that's pretty much for my dogs. That's it. So Toast is holding, Ember is testing, Blitz is living the best life she could possibly imagine living. (laughs) I also noticed you have, um, you have a little like spotted Merle dog (laughs) at your house. What's going on with that? Um, That is Beignet and that is um, a client of Grayson and mine. Um, She is with me for my raisin train program. So she's going to be with me for two months, a month as a puppy and a month as an adult. So we're doing all the fun puppy stuff. Um, everything we've talked about in these last couple of episodes, I'm doing with Beignet for her owner. She'll go home at 12 weeks and then come back again around five and a half, six months old for e-collar intro and formal obedience and hopefully make her into a really great companion that Megan can take to breweries and restaurants and be a great buddy for Choctaw and the farm and That's cool. all that. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I honestly, like I hear, I always listen to you talk about these things you're doing, but I don't think we ever like stop and you l- <laughs> break it down for me. <laughs> and so that's really the first time I've, I, I, that's your raisin train program. I really like it. I think it makes a lot of sense. So anybody out there, you know, over the course of these last few episodes, we've talked about puppies, puppy development, um, if you're worried about that phase of life, especially like house training stuff, then there's time not- is, I think a big one for people. Yeah. If you are gone all day, every day and you don't have time to really start a puppy, right? Reach out or buy a starter dog. Yeah. So raise and train is a great option for, mm-hmm. for those people. So, um, snake aversion. April 29th. 29th. So yep. that's the first one I've got. That's that's the first weekend I've got available to do one where I, Emily can be there and I need Emily there to to manage the um that day-to-day part for me. It's it's too much. I'll screw it up otherwise, guaranteed. So so if as long as I can focus on doing the work, then then we're good. So but that's a little later than I was hoping for this year, but not terrible. Um I'm playing around with other options. I don't want to talk about them publicly yet, but I may kind of stick close if you're interested in snake aversion. Uh, and especially if you're worried because April 29th isn't going to work out for you, pay attention. Odds are I'm going to drop some options for those of you out there in that boat here in the near future. I think that's it. I need, uh, still need a few dogs for my summer retrieve program. I'm filling up the fall for bird work. Mm-hmm. So if you're out there and you need a dog force fetched, I don't care if it's a uh, husky. <laughs> Just sit. we'll do it, right? So at this point, um, we've got we got enough to to make the summer, but I'd still like to have a couple of more if I if I can. So especially out there thinking of you guys that are considering a UT on your dog or really serious about duck hunting with your pointing dog, um, or if you oh, got a retriever, yeah, if you got a retriever, you want gun dog work done on. I try to get them 
pretty, I think I moved pretty quick, honestly, and still managed to not skip any of the bases, you know? So, um, if you're interested in any of that, reach out. We'd love to have you. Um, we'd love to have you for a visit as well. If you'd just like to see the place. Thanks for listening guys. And, uh, we'll see you next time. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.